Hey everybody, welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick. Coming up on this episode, we're going to talk about the most dangerous weapon on Earth. And if that's not scary enough for you, we'll discuss the top five Halloween movies of all time. We estimate that all together among all these countries, there's just on the order of 1,800 nuclear warheads on ballistic missiles that are on a high alert right now, ready to fire. The weapon that destroyed Hiroshima had us an explosive yield, as it's called, an explosive power of 15,000 tons of TNT. In comparison, the largest weapon that is currently in the U.S. arsenal has a maximum yield of 1,200,000 tons of TNT, uh, thanks to one single uh, Russian officer who was on duty that night who said to himself, this doesn't make sense. Uh, This is crazy. So he refused to follow the orders. But that man probably saved the world that day. If you were a ghost, what would be like, what would be your go to meal if you had to eat the same meal every day? Am I gaining it? Like, do I have do I have health concerns as a ghost or can I eat whatever I want? I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. So if you're new to this podcast, one of the things that we really like doing is talking about stuff that we all know about, but don't really know about. In this case, it's going to be nuclear weapons. Everybody knows what that is. Everybody knows that they're dangerous. But when you really look into it and talk to somebody like our first guest who knows so much about it, we always seem to find out that things don't really work the way that you think that they would work. And in this case... That's really kind of scary. Our first guest is Hans Christensen. He's the director of the Nuclear Information Project with the Federation of American Scientists, and he has some fascinating perspective on how many of these weapons are out there, who has them, who's trying to get them, and how close we have come, whether on purpose or just completely by accident, to, I'll be dramatic, annihilating civilization as we know it. Do you feel like we're in a more or less dangerous time than we have been in before? No, I think we're in a less dangerous time. The point being that I grew up during the Cold War, and I remember um, how dangerous it was. Um, And the scale of the intensity of the danger at that time was far, far beyond what we're in now. That said, of course, um, there are a lot of new dynamics and that are at play today. And um, and uh, and so things like that can get out of control and escalate into something that's much more serious. But despite the problems today, we're not living 30 minutes from nuclear annihilation like we did during the Cold War. I always kind of evaluate things on a 1 to 10 scale. 1 being everything is fine, don't worry about anything. 10 being everybody hide under the bed. If the Cold War was a number what, what number do you think we're at right now? Uh, well, we probably if if the if one is the most serious uh, one, then um, I would s- sort of guess we are in a six or seven, something like that. It's very difficult to sort of say exactly why that is, because or what makes the difference, because times are different and uh, relations are different and dynamics are different, but um, and so each era has its own unique dangers. But I think if, if people are trying to compare with, you know, how dangerous, you know, what what was at risk? And I think that's where you really have to 
remember the Cold War as something uniquely different than what we're in today. For people who are, are younger and maybe have read about it but don't really understand, what was that yeah. period like? Uh, it was uh, very tense, very nervous. Um, you literally, and I remember this from growing up in Europe, um, where we were sort of essentially on the battle line, um, that you there were times when you sort of got the feeling that, you know, missiles could start flying in 30 minutes. And uh, it got very tense uh, depending on, you know, incidents and depending on political climate, whatever. But even though things fluctuated, I think what was really frightening about it was that it was an ongoing and constant and persistent competition, military and, and, and ideological competition between the East and, and West. So everything was geared toward winning and toward outmaneuvering the other, etc. So that was just like a – I can remember millions of people demonstrating in Europe uh, out of fear – that the governments were just basically creating unacceptable uh, uncertainties and dangers. When we talk about nuclear weapons, like in my mind, what I'm imagining is the missile silo out in the middle of Siberia or something like that. Is that what we're really talking about or is it something else? <laughs> no, that's uh, one of the interesting things that although the Cold War ended, we, we still have Cold War-like nuclear postures, so to speak. We are the force structures of the nuclear forces of the United States and Russia are still very much structured uh, the way they were uh, in terms of broad outlines, the way they were during those days. And that has to do with the way they think about how it's most efficient to have and, and potentially use uh, and also protect nuclear forces if you have to. Um, so, so we have both sides have a triad of uh, nuclear forces. That means uh, there are land-based long-range long ballistic missiles, sea-based uh, long-range ballistic missiles, and then there are um, long-range bombers that have um, you know, gravity weapons or cruise missiles. Um, and then there's also uh, a variety of non-strategic, that means shorter-range nuclear systems uh, on both sides. Newer countries that are coming in are also trying to copy those type of postures. So you see China is moving toward creating a triad as well. India is trying to do the same thing. Pakistan, something that looks like it. Um, whereas uh, older countries like France and Britain have moved in the other direction. France is down to what we call a diet, two legs, um, air-based and sea-based um, and the Brits have gone down to just a single platform, just a single leg, which is a, a ballistic missile submarine fleet. So it, it varies, but the thrust of it is still uh, between the big nuclear powers that um, nuclear forces are structured in much the same way they were during the Cold War. There are just fewer of them, and the plans for their potential use have relaxed quite a bit, um, but they're still being maintained um, and – we estimate that all together among all these countries, there's just on the order of 1,800 nuclear warheads on ballistic missiles that are on a high alert um, right now, ready to fire uh, any time the president um, orders them to do so. How much of a dec decrease is that from the high point? Oh, it's enormous. During the mid-80s, there were about 10,000 nuclear weapons on, on both sides on high alert. <laughs> and so there's been a huge change. And also during the mid-1980s, if you counted 
all nuclear warheads, both those that were deployed, those that were in reserve, and, and also those that had been retired but had not yet been taken apart. If you added all of that up, uh, in 1985, 86, there were just above 70,000 nuclear weapons on this planet. Today, we're down to just around 14,000. I mean, obviously, that's a huge decrease, but does that really matter? Because from a layperson standpoint, I kind of look at it as like, all right, we have a lot less, but you only need like five of them. Correct. That's what's so, so crazy about it. If you look at a chart over the different countries, how much they have, there are only two countries in the world, the United States and Russia, who believe you need more than a few hundred nuclear weapons to defend yourself. So they're sort of stuck in their own mindset from the Cold War still and have not been as successful as they could have been drawing the forces down to force levels that are closer to uh, other nuclear armed states. And there are many reasons for that, of course. One is inertia inside. There is an opposition to do it. You know, different, you know, different military services have a lot of turf involved and, and history and prestige involved. Uh, but it's also about what you think you need to have to be a big power. And they're not, they're not, they're reluctant to sort of reduce too much because then, for, exa for example, they think that China would get too close and be able to compete on that level. So, uh, so there are many reasons for why it's like that. But I think it's unfortunate that government officials, when they, they talk about nuclear progress, they very much sort of point to that number. Look how few we have today compared to what we have during the Cold War. But that's the wrong way to look at it. What, what, what they need to explain, of course, is why do we still have the numbers we have? And, and what is the plan? You know, what is the outlook 20, 30 years out into the future? Why do we still have them? I mean, it feels like for much of the developed world, and I'm talking about like first world countries, no, I don't I don't really – I don't see the point, I guess. They have unique promises and unique challenges associated with them. And so the reason people – countries – don't want to give them up um, is because they provide a sense of that security. Yes, they're also threatening, of course. <laughs> you can be destroyed by them. But as long as these weapons exist, so the argument goes, it's probably a good insurance policy to have some of them so that um, you can deter those that have them elsewhere from doing something dangerous against you. That makes sense. I mean, I just guess I look at it kind of in the I know you're not going to use it, so why have it? But you can't get rid of it because the other guy has it. The major powers. Who are we talking about? Nine of them. There are. Uh, there is the United States and Russia, by far the largest. Uh, then there is France and China and Britain. Those five together are what's known as the five original nuclear weapon states, the permanent five, so to speak. Um, they were uh, the five countries that were recognized as nuclear weapon states back in 1970 when the Non-Proliferation Treaty was signed. And that was a very important treaty that still is very important to try to prevent proliferation of nuclear weapons to others. Some, some countries stayed outside, though. And so uh, what we've seen, like I mentioned uh, since, is that India, Pakistan has joined, North Korea pulled out of the non-proliferation treaty and, and started building its arsenal. Uh, Israel has not signed the NPT and they start to have a small uh, nuclear arsenal as well. Um, so we're talking about nine countries today that have nuclear weapons. That That is significant, but it is significantly fewer than people feared uh, would be here today 
uh, back in the 1960s. There was a real concern in the 60s and 70s that we would have many more nuclear weapon states. Uh, probably around 25 or so was the projection in those days. Um, so other countries that haven't done it, have they not done of it? done it because of the technology or just because they don't see a reason to do it? It's a mix. Um, uh, under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, um, the uh, the promise was that the nuclear weapon states, the, those five that were recognized, would work hard to reduce, um, to end the nuclear arms race, reduce their arsenals, and eventually get rid of them. Uh, and in return for that pledge, the, the non-nuclear weapon states, and we're talking about over 100 of them, well over 100 of them, um, signed on and promised not to develop this stuff. They thought that would, was a better way of securing their own security than try to get them. That then gave them access to technology. That was the promise, the technology of peaceful nuclear power, nuclear power stations to produce electricity. So there was sort of a bargain there between the nuclear weapon states and the non-nuclear weapon states. Um, but there were also a number of arrangements that were in place. For example, uh, the United States provided what it calls uh, extended nuclear deterrence, uh, sort of an umbrella over its allies. So it would promise uh, NATO allies, for example, that it would it would come to their assistance if they're attacked uh, by the Soviet Union and later Russia uh, with nuclear weapons. And same promises or similar promises were made to Japan and South Korea. Um, and that presumably caused uh, countries in those groups that could otherwise have developed nuclear weapons to decide not to. What's kind of the bigger worry in your mind moving forward? Is it a country doing something or is it an organization like a terrorist organization getting a hold of one of these? Well, so the good news is that we've now been very afraid of terrorist organizations getting hold of nuclear weapons, um, you know, for a couple of decades and, you know, obviously since the first Gulf Wars in the 90s, 1990s, um, in the second Gulf War in 2003, this fear that nuclear weapons would proliferate in, in, in more countries but also end up in the, in the hands of terrorist organizations um, has been really high, uh, that, that concern. The good news, of course, is that because of a lot of efforts and maybe also some luck, it hasn't happened. Uh, we haven't had organizations, terror organizations, setting off nuclear weapons, not even uh, significant dirty nuclear weapons, you could say, sort of where they explode radioactive materials rather than the nuclear weapon itself. Um, so there's been a really, really um, focused effort internationally to try to prevent that from happening. So I, I would sort of guess that I think today that the real danger is not that the United States and, and Russia will start throwing nuclear weapons at each other um, or against the Chinese or, or that we'll end up sort of in a global nuclear catastrophe. My concern is more that a regional scenario, um, for example, between India and Pakistan, will uh, bubble out of control and escalate into nuclear weapons use. Um, that there's just some new studies that have come out that shows that even if those countries where there are relatively few nuclear weapons, comparatively few, few nuclear weapons, um, use their arsenals or a significant portion of them, it would have not only regional climatic consequences, but 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 on a global scale. Um, another another potential threat, of course, is sort of the wild card threat from North Korea, where people have sort of feared that one day, you know, there will be a 
a clash or a disagreement or whatever, and the North Koreans would lob a nuclear weapon into Tokyo or uh, sort of a, a much more limited use, if you will, but just sort of a spasm of, um, and that's obviously terrifying, uh, but, but nothing compared to the scale of destruction that larger nuclear arsenals can can deliver. And so I said U.S. and Russia would not would be less likely to be directly involved, but they could get pulled in. They could get pulled into such a conflict that they had to come in and back up their their ally and what have you, and suddenly you know you could end up in a in a hot conventional war that could escalate into nuclear use. So the, once you get into these shooting uh, scenarios and, and 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 conflicts escalating, well, that's where all these um, pathways to potential nuclear use could 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 uh, open up. So let's say we're envisioning a scenario where the worst case scenario happens. What do you think sets it off? Depending on who the players are, I think what's most likely to set it off is um, a, a border crisis um, that that evolves into a larger conventional shooting war. And one of the sides that has nuclear weapons uh, is at a significant disadvantage and decides to escalate to nuclear use. Of course, just at the beginning, very limited nuclear use to scare off um, the country that is, um, you know, that has the upper hand, and that that therefore triggers use by the other country as well. Instead of making it back down, then you could see more of them come into play very quickly. Um, not only could you see those countries doing it, but you could also see other nuclear weapon states, if they were in alliance with one of the two, get pulled into the conflict. But I just want to say also, I think the good news is that those that have nuclear weapons are fully aware of the tremendous consequences of using of using them in any shape or form and and so that does have a sort of a, a dampening effect on the willingness to rattle the nuclear sword too much are they that much i mean what was it the last time they were used was 1945 is that about right that's right against two cities in japan at the end of uh, world war ii now, how much more powerful are they than than that time when they were last used Tens, hundreds, many more times. Uh, comparison, um, the weapon that destroyed Hiroshima had a, an explosive yield, as it's called, uh, an explosive power of the equivalent of 15,000 15, tons of TNT, so 15 kiloton. And uh, in comparison, the largest weapon that is currently in the U.S. arsenal has a maximum yield of 1,200 tons of TNT. Uh, we're talking significantly different weapons, um, and not just in terms of their explosive power, but also in terms of their accuracy. I mean, remember in, in World War II, it was a it was a bomber that flew high above um, Hiroshima and dropped a ball, a bomb that free fell, and it detonated, uh, you know, a certain height over the city, but it wasn't very accurate, so to speak. Um, today, you have weapons that from a distance uh, from the other side of the planet, essentially, can put a warhead within a circle of, uh, you know, a few hundred feet. So they're vastly more capable to, to dig up stuff and destroy things than they were during those days. Is anybody trying to put them into space? No, fortunately not yet. Um, but, uh, and, and there are reasons for that. One, of course, is that... Um, Early on, when 
countries, big powers began to populate this, uh, you know, uh, space with satellites that they used as sensors to follow what was going on, but also to provide themselves with early warning of an uh, impending attack from someone else. Um, they quickly realized it was in their national interest to try to prevent uh, countries from deploying nuclear weapons in space because you can very quickly create a lot of havoc. And so, you know, there's even a treaty today that prevents deployment of nuclear weapons in space. Um, so, so that's I not I don't think that is a sort of an immediate danger. Um, that said, there are there could be developments that in a deteriorated relationship in the future could lead to deployment of some systems like that that uses nuclear technology uh, in space. I might mess this up a little bit, but you essentially discovered that the United States had a policy to strike first. I wouldn't say that. Um, I, the United States has had a variety of variations of nuclear strategy over the years. They have had elements of preemption in them. But when I say preemption, I don't mean sort of an out-of-the-blue preemption, that suddenly one day we wake up and let's nuke that country. But preemption in the sense of if a war is already going on, you might need uh, to use nuclear weapons uh, preemptively against a set of targets to prevent their use. You're basically using weapons as damage limitation tools. So, so that's the form of first use. But um, we are seeing, we're seeing some new developments now because of this um, sort of revival of great power competition that we're seeing in these years. There is... Uh, an increased focus on potentially using nuclear weapons against non-nuclear attacks. Um, we've always had elements of this, but we're seeing a revival of it. Um, so in the last uh, nuclear posture review um, that the Trump administration published in 2018, we see, we see an effort to enhance the roles that nuclear weapons play against uh, what they called non-nuclear strategic attacks. Uh, that use would be first use um, because those weapons would be non-nuclear, whether the large conventional or cyber attack or bacterial attacks or what have you, biological weapons, whatever the, the, the circumstances are, a use of nuclear weapons on the part of the United States would be first use. And so that is a worrisome new development that you can also find elements in, of in other nuclear weapon states. Most people think about when they talk about the role of nuclear weapons is you have them in your basement so that if somebody so, does something really stupid, um, you can retaliate with them and you know hit back. And that threat of hitting back um, is what's supposed to threat uh, you know deter the adversary from doing something stupid in the first place. Um, but between that and everything else, you can develop all sorts of variations of that strategy. What country worries you the most? <laughs> um, there are worries about all of them for, for different reasons. I would say that if the worry is about where could we see nuclear weapons in use, uh, that kind of just breaking the, the taboo, so to speak, um, that's what I would see in, in, in a scenario with India-Pakistan or in a wild card scenario with North Korea. I do not think the United States, Russia, and China 
and under normal circumstances, certainly not India, Pakistan either, see, a, see a, any interest in using nuclear weapons. I mean, they understand fully what the consequences would be. Um, but because of their national circumstances, um, there can be situations in where they're more likely to be drawn in and, and, and break that taboo. When you look at the current administration in the White House, what are your thoughts in that regards to nuclear weapons? Incompetence and recklessness. Uh, the point being that I think we in this president have a president who, who really doesn't get it when it comes to uh, international affairs, certainly uh, how these things evolve or can evolve. Um, and who doesn't seem particularly concerned about, you know, saying really bombastic stuff, uh, whether it be sort of, you know, uh, fire and fury and all these types of threats. Uh, those are things you should really, really be careful about. And uh, But more importantly also, nuclear policy works or evolves in a constructive way if there's a deliberate, fact-focused process that manages it. And that is one of the characteristics that is completely missing from uh, the current administration. Um, so I think that is, a, you know, it's no wonder that we, during this administration, has seen more interest in Congress and among former officials uh, about this issue of who should have the authority to launch nuclear weapons first. Um, and for the first time, we've had a real debate, a real debate about whether Congress should impose restrictions on the ability of a president, not just this president, but any president, to wake up one day or get in to a really bad mood in a, in a crisis and whatever and order the use of nuclear weapons. Um, that is a very extreme scenario, of course, but I think it's telling that so m many more people uh, have started to worry about that scenario. How does that work in the United States? Like, is it his decision alone, or does it... Yeah, it's his decision. Um, that's the... You, I mean, if you step back, you know, you scratch your head and say, really? One person has that awesome responsibility and power? Uh, but yes, the president is the sole person who has the authority and the right to authorize uh, the use of the nuclear weapons. And so if he does it, the whole system is set up so as to implement that order. So it's not like you have a group of people who have to call in with him and say, hmm, oh, yeah, this is a good idea, bad idea. No. If he orders it, that order trickles down the system, and it's up to the next people in the line of command to execute it. So that's why people are a little concerned these days uh, that perhaps there should be some extra checks on this but let me just say here, I think the check that people are asking for, people are asking for, is not that it should never be um, possible for the U.S. president to authorize the use of nuclear weapons without somebody else approving it. The issue people have is that they're worried that he can do it first. Um, so out of the blue or in a hasty decision, et cetera, et cetera. It's a completely different matter if you're imagining someone else attacking the United States with nuclear weapons, then I don't think there's anyone um, seriously challenging that the president should have the, the, the authority to 
um, authorize a response uh, based on whatever advice he's going to get from his military advisor. But that's that. So there, it's important to emphasize that there's a difference between this first use of nuclear weapons and a retaliatory response in in reaction to someone else's attack. I mean, if if we're in a situation though where he gives the order. Like how long before that missile is leaving the silo, so to speak? Are we talking minutes? Are we talking hours, days? Minutes. So from the minute he, launch, he launches uh, or issues the order and it trickles down through the system, by the time they get that within a few minutes um, in the silos in the Midwest, uh, those missiles will fly within four to five minutes. And there's once they're gone, there's no there's no bringing them back, right? Correct. Um, if they have been fed the correct targets into their guidance system, under normal circumstances, they are in these silos uh, without the, the real coordinates in them. They're instead they have a set of coordinates that are, that are aimed at the oceans, so that if there was an accident, then the missiles wouldn't just fly and wipe out Moscow, and we would call up and say sorry. Um, they will fly out. And, and hit the oceans. But if you have a formal uh, order to launch by the president, and it's recognized to be an authentic presidential launch order, uh, it triggers the feeding in of targeting data in the computers uh, and activating certain targets, depending on what that particular mission is. Uh, and then, then there are real targets over real uh, facilities in someone else's country. Have you ever heard of anything like an accident almost happening or something went wrong or anything like that? Oh, yeah. There have been many uh, cases over the years and probably many more than we've heard of. But those that have been declassified and described are some uh, very significant uh, close calls. Um, a former Secretary of Defense, William Perry, will be able to tell you a story about when he was called up by his military advisors in the middle of the night. And the computers showed that 200 uh, Soviet ballistic missiles were on their way over the North Pole against toward their targets in the United States. Um, he had to decide within just a few moments if he, had, if he should call the president. And uh, fortunately, things turned out in such a way that they discovered that it wasn't a real attack somebody had by mistake put in a tape into the computer that replayed a, an exercise scenario. you got to be kidding me. So they're really close calls. We also have close calls from the former Soviet Union, most famously back in the early 80s, where a glitch in the Russian early warning system uh, fooled one of their, detect, uh, their systems to, to think that uh, American missiles were coming over the pole, and they were supposed to execute the re retaliatory response um, at that early stage. And it's a famous uh, story these days that there was just uh, thanks to one single uh, Russian officer who was on duty that night who said to himself, this doesn't make sense, uh, this is crazy, so he refused to follow the orders. And... Uh, you know, he was later disgraced and all these types of things because he didn't follow order. But that man probably saved the world that day. 
That's what honestly worries me more about having them than anything else. It's not really that the countries are going to go to war and yeah. it's going to be a, it's going to be like the janitor falls down one day and bumps the button. Yep. <laughs> bumps the, yeah, exactly. Um, true because, um, it is in that you have the unpredictable, you have the, the mistakes, the misunderstandings, the overreactions, what have you, the stuff that is not supposed to happen. I mean, you can plan all sorts of things. That looked great on paper, and uh, you know, but once you have people involved and the fog of war or the you know uncertainties about what it is your sensors are telling you, um, then suddenly you can you can end up in really terrible decisions. Which is an important reason for why some people argue that we should not have nuclear weapons on high alert. Unfortunately, so far it's been impossible to convince uh, U.S. and Russian governments that they should take their nuclear weapons completely off alert. So there's still some work to be done there. Okay, are you ready for the hard questions? (laughs) Shoot. How do you feel about people who say nuclear instead of nuclear like it's supposed to be pronounced? (laughs) Yeah, well, what do I say? I say, you know... Great going. Let's have a discussion about that. You know, say whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> if you were, when you talk about a movie, what movie has the most realistic depiction of like, okay, this is what this could actually look like? Hmm, yeah. Well, there have been a number over the years. Um, of course, the famous movie from the 1980s, uh, The Day After, was a scary illustration that really captured people. We saw movies like, um, War Games, uh, which was another example of using computers to get in and, and get things started. Um, so there have been a number of them that are really good. There was also some classics from the old day, um, from the old days. Um, Failsafe is one of them. Um, Doctor Strangelove, not to even though so it was satirical, it was frighteningly realistic, <laughs> and it really got people's attention at the time. Um, so there have been some real classics out there. If you were a betting man, odds are that we see one used in, in let's say, the next 50 years. Yes, odds are we, we will see that. How how good odds are you giving it? You going like above 50%, below 50%? No, I think below 50%. I, you know, again, that is assuming circumstances as we have them now. But in six months, they could be different. Are are they really the big thing that we should be worried about, or has that kind of passed? No, we should very much be worried about them. I'm not saying it's the only thing we should worry about, nor necessarily the most important thing we should worry about, but it's one of the very, very important things we should worry about. There are lots of other issues, of course, and it is interesting to talk to younger people today who didn't grow up during the Cold War, and many of them have no clue what it was, or what nuclear weapons are and how many there are and all this kind of stuff. Um, But they're very, very engaged and concerned about climate change, for example. They're very active. They think this is something they can do something about. Uh, For many of them, nuclear weapons is much more uh, mysterious and out of their control, you know, led by militaries and secret uh, agencies and things like that that can be hard to influence and what have you. Um, so I think, you know, there is a role for different people in different elements of, of, of this problem sets. We have to um, 
tackle and uh, but but there are lots lots of major major problems facing the human race and whoever else lives, lives on this planet so that's just to say nuclear weapons is, is is one element of it i want to thank han so much for joining us if you want to connect with him learn more about the nuclear information project or the federation of american scientists we have linked to him and their accounts on our social media accounts were profoundly pointless on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I, I really had to find kind of a balancing act in talking about nuclear weapons because you don't want to be overdramatic with the idea that, oh my gosh, everybody just hide under the bed because it's all over. But it is also, it is also really dangerous and something that maybe maybe we will really have to worry about moving forward. So you don't want to be alarmist, but you also don't want to kind of avoid the obvious danger at the same time. Okay, so now let's go ahead and give John Shaw a call. And I just have a feeling this isn't going to go well today for some reason. Hello? I I know I usually start by asking you a question. I just feel like you're going to make me angry today. Well, that's that's not a good way to start off the uh, the segment. Why why would I make you angry today? I just have a feeling. Are you doing this in? <laughs> where, where are you doing this now? Are you in your car? I uh, know that it's irrelevant where I'm doing it. It uh, it should. Why 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 would you then ask me a question knowing my answer, which is gonna which apparently will make you mad, which I don't understand why. Here's why because. Having good reception is important for recording the phone calls, and I told you that, but you're like, no, no, I'm going to do this anyway, and I bet you're in your car right now. But I'm connected to uh, to a wireless signal. I am connected to a business's Wi-Fi signal, and I have five bars right now. Okay, well, bars doesn't matter when it comes to Wi-Fi. That's not how that works, by the way. Did you know that? Should I just hang up? Or are you going to be a dick the entire the entire segment? I'm just merely pointing out that when you look at your phone and you look at the number of bars, that is related to cellular service. That is not related to the Wi-Fi signal. It's a two different things. You're you're completely right. You're right. Okay. <laughs> are you actually acknowledging that I'm right, or are you just trying to move on? I, I I'm just I'm just wondering uh, how you can be upset at the fact that. That I'm taking time out to do this with you. And you're still angry. How are you angry? I'm just angry because, like, you and I like to try to do a good job. And I was worried that you weren't going to, you know, put yourself in a position to succeed. I'm not mad for my sake. I'm mad for you. I, I actually thought about several places where I could do this. I may have looked at my bars on my phone and said, oh, that's a shitty spot. (laughs) <laughs> but apparently that doesn't matter. So I guess the spot that I picked works regardless. So, hey, I'll, I'll take it. Um, how close are you to a tree? I mean, I'm inside of a building. So I'm pro. I mean, I don't know. I'm probably 300 yards away from a tree. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Just wondering <laughs> if you were just wondering if you were enjoying some fall foliage or foliage, foliage, foliage. any of this has to do with us doing a good job i mean i sound good you sound like yourself i mean it's it's good everything is good all right okay let's move on then um how many times a day do you think you wash your hands or shower i know i i I shower probably once a day okay 
Morning or night? When are you showering? Oh, oh, always morning. Never at night. You? That's disgusting. I guess so. I mean, so do you go to bed with all like all the day's nastiness? You go, you go to bed with that. I mean, usually. That's see, I never understood that. That's disgusting to me, right? So you just have all the day's grossness, and you're just gonna sleep in that all day long, all night long. I mean, I guess so. I mean, I, I wash my hands probably. 10 to 20 times a day? That seems like a lot, actually. Well, how many times do you go to the bathroom? At least 5 to 10 times a day, right? I don't think... Probably 5 to 7 times a day is how many times I would go to the bathroom, I think. Yeah, then and then so even if you go just 5 times to the bathroom... I don't always wash... I wash my hands before and after every meal. I have like 7 meals, so that's 13 (laughs) times right there. <laughs> there you go. Now we're um, getting to it. I don't wash my hands every time I go to the bathroom. Oh, okay. I mean, do you? I don't even want to know the answer to this, but do, do you not? Do you not physically? No, I I do. Touch? I just don't. I don't believe that you need to wash your hands every time you go to the bathroom. You're gonna say that I'm disgusting because I don't take a shower every night. But yet, it's okay for you not to wash your hands after take a piss or take a shit. Well, after I if I if I go number two, I'm going to wash him. But I don't necessarily wash him if I go number one. I just don't see the point. Do you know they've actually done research that washing your hands doesn't really do anything? What mainly does something is the physical act of rubbing your hands together. You're literally just causing friction. And that's how you get the germs off. That's really the only thing that's working. So you don't need to wash your hands at all. You can just rub them together. It's the same thing. Well, apparently you have an answer to everything today. You are I know everything Nick today. I love that, Nick. Why are you so angry? I'm not angry. I, I, could, I, could, I feel like I could say the sky is blue and you're going to tell me uh, it's not actually blue. It's turquoise, which it's only blue because of a certain part of the sun, all this other bullshit. Uh, or I could tell you that the pavement is black, and you're going to tell me, no, it's actually, like, beige. Well, no, pavement, generally, when you're talking about it, if you're talking about a concrete pavement, that's <laughs> a gray. That's a grayish color. It's just wrong. That's the problem. It's just wrong. <laughs> pavement is not necessarily black. That's asphalt. All right? That's two different things. I just want you to be factually correct. That's you all. Ask, you ask anyone that listens to this show... Or, or take a, a general straw poll, and they will tell you that they do not know the difference between asphalt and pavement. I guarantee it. Mm, I don't know about that. I think that when people actually think about it, they probably do know the difference between asphalt and pavement. Asphalt is generally like that's a parking lot. If you're talking about pavement, that's usually a driveway. People know the difference between a driveway and a parking lot. But nobody thinks about it. Well, when you if you ask them though, I think that they would. I I, I think eighty five percent of the population, if you ask them a simple question, they don't think about it more than two seconds. Probably not, but I mean that's also with our experience. They probably don't want to be talking to us in the first place and just give us like a mm, so we go away. That's very true. I'm sure you get that a lot more than I do. Okay, here's my other question for you: If you're cooking food. And let's say it's either 10% too cold or 10% too hot. Are you going to wait to heat it back up a little bit? Are you going to wait for it to cool down? Or are you just going to try to eat it that way? So <laughs> it's actually an interesting point of uh, 
uh, an interesting thing with me. If it's too hot, I'll eat it. If it's too cold, I'll eat it, regardless. So the answer is I'll eat it. However, I will bitch and not do anything about it if it's too cold, but yet I'll still eat it. But I will not complain if it's too hot. I'll just eat it. At what point, okay, what percentage away from being cooked are you going to start to heat it up, right? So you cook 90, it's 95% of the way done. You're going to eat it 90%. What point will you stop and heat it and actually heat it up? Say you're making a hot pocket, right? Right. And the outer edges get hot and the, and the, and the inside is like maybe still partially frozen. I will not, I will eat it partially frozen. Wow, that is, are you lazy or that hungry? Probably lazy. I mean, the microwave's 25 steps away. Although a Hot Pocket, okay, pick another example and give me a number. Because a Hot Pocket is generally impossible to cook, right? No matter what you do, it's <laughs> blazing hot on the outside and freezing on the inside. Uh, okay, like leftover Chinese food. Okay, that's a good example. You, you know, you put it in the microwave for however long. It never seems like the middle ever gets cooked like the outsides are. You got to stir it. You're not stirring your stuff? No, like I'll, I'll even stir it and the and, uh, the middle will still be I mean, maybe it's not cold, but it's it's not hot like the outsides are. I've never had this problem reheating things with a microwave. What kind of microwave you got? I don't know. What's I have brand? no idea what kind of microwave I have. Give me the BTUs. What's the brand in the BTU? I, I still couldn't tell you. Can you tell me your microwave? Yeah, it's a Panasonic 125 BTUs. Oh, my God. Well, you're you're a better microwave person than I am. I don't know if Panasonic makes microwaves or not. I can actually look and see what kind of microwave mine is. Hold on. Okay, it's General Electric. Should have known. Should have known. GE makes a hell of a microwave. Um, are you ready? Let's hear your segment. What do you got? So listen, I'm going to start first with these. You no, know, actually, since you're, since, you're not, since you're not at your house where you usually are, can you make some music off the side of the wall? <laughs> sure. Uh, let's do this. Here we go. Nice. That's actually pretty good. I like that. That's good. All right. All right. So... Like I said, we're going to start first with the social media shout-out, which on Twitter uh, we asked our faithful audience uh, if they'd like to be a ghost. And uh, the best response came from uh, Narc Sanchez, (laughs) who said, as long as there's ghost food and shit. I have many questions. One of them I want to ask Narc is what is ghost food? Well, I mean, how would we know? None of us are ghosts. I don't think that's I mean, been properly documented. I mean, apparently Narc knows what ghost food is because he wants some of it. No, I like him because he's thinking from a logistical standpoint, right? This isn't a man, assuming it's a man, that just goes out and does things. This is a man that has a plan. And he's clearly <laughs> come up with an idea and thought through the logistics of being a ghost, which I think a lot of people haven't. I mean, we've always just assumed that ghosts don't have food. But what if they do? Then you're kind of screwed. Maybe that's why they're pissed off all the time. If you were a ghost, what would be like? What would be your go-to meal if you had to eat the same meal every day? I think probably pizza. I mean, you can't. Like, if you really got sick of pizza, you could fold it over. And if you had like a cheeseburger <laughs> pizza, it could be like I, I would say pizza is probably going to be. Am I gain it? Like, do I have do I have health concerns as a ghost, or can I eat whatever I want? 
No, you stay you stay like who you are when you first become the ghost. You can eat whatever you want and oh. not have to worry about anything. Pizza. All right, there's seven-year-old. Um, what are you going to get? I'm going to get filet mignon with a side of... Like a, like a cob salad every day. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> of course you don't. Uh, I'm surprised. No, probably... Look at look. If we put up pictures of the two of us and we asked which one of us knows what a cob salad is. <laughs> well, it depends. If you put up a picture of me from 10 years ago or now. It's kind of the same, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, all right, so here's some questions for you. We'll start with the easy one first. Okay. Uh, say you're stuck with one of these things for life and you have to pick one. Which one is it? Uh, dial-up internet or a rotary phone? Oh, rotary phone. That's not that difficult. Okay. I I mean, have you ever used a rotary phone? Yeah, but I use okay. dial-up internet a lot more than I would be using the rotary phone. I mean, how much are you just – how much do you I, have to – do all that other stuff, right? Like, how many calls are you making? If you're working as a telemarketer, then that's a problem. Well, I mean, think think how much you use your cell phone, and now your cell phone's gone, and you have to do everything via the rotary phone. It's not that really that big of a deal. All right, well, whatever. Go fuck yourself. Okay. Um, so say you're say you're some kind of professional, whether it be an athlete or or a, an entertainer or something like that. But say your wife goes into labor. Uh, would you stay with her through the labor or would you go, say you had a game or, or a concert, would you go and do that and tell her she's on her own? No, you stay with her for the baby. I mean, unless you've got like 40 kids and like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's okay, if it's your wife, that's, that's not, you have to go. Just for a little context, that, that question stemmed from, there was, uh, St. Louis uh, Cardinals are playing the Washington Nationals in the National League Conference Series. And the closer for the Nationals was not there for the first game of the series because his wife was giving birth to the third child. And he chose to be with her instead of being with the team. And can you believe there was actually some trolls on Twitter, one of them a pretty well-respected baseball journalist, that said that it was a shame that he wasn't there for the game, but he was there for his family. Well, that person's an idiot. Yeah, I would. I actually agree with you on that. Who is the uh, writer? Now I want to look it up. Who was it? I'd have to look him up. I forget his name. Mm, well-respected man who no one remembers. <laughs> well, he's not going to have any followers after uh, after that. That's for sure. What a what um, a moron! And then you have to eat, or you have to eat one of these two things: guinea pig ice cream. Or Percy Pig Halloween treats. Guinea pig ice cream. Now, the ice cream is made by guinea pigs, or it's flavored like a guinea pig? No, apparently it, it, it is flavored as a guinea pig. Like, there is, it, it's made from guinea pig meat. Percy Pig treats are Halloween candy, apparently, that they distribute in South America that is made primarily of pig fat. Oh, I bet actually the pig fat's pretty good. I mean, it's essentially bacon, right? Ugh, yeah, I guess so. I, uh. <laughs> yeah, I would go with the pig treats. I mean, that sounds like you're just basically eating bacon. I don't actually. There's some cultures though that eat guinea pig, and they consider it to be really good. I don't know what it is, but well, I'm going with guinea pig ice cream all day because let's be honest. If I can choose between ice cream and most anything else, I'm going with any kind of ice cream. I I agree. Are you ready for our top five? I am. I'm. 
you know, last week we had a lot of similar uh, choices. I have a feeling we might be somewhat on the same page with this one as well. I don't think so. I think we're going right. to be pretty far apart. I think that you're going to go a certain direction. I think I'm going to go a certain direction. And so these are the top these are the top five Halloween movies. So I went to it with the understanding that the movies are just based around Halloween. Correct? Is that what you did? Yes, ish. Mo- I will say eighty percent of mine are based around Halloween. I would think, uh, and then the other twenty percent are ones that are just known. One, you know, as Halloween approaches and during the holiday, like they're just known as holiday, like Halloween movies. Okay, what's your number five? Uh, the night before Christmas. How is that a Halloween movie? Because it's based upon Halloween. It has to. If you've ever seen it, which I don't recommend it, because I think it's a pretty terrible movie myself. Um, it's based. It's it's Tim Burton. It's it's anime or animation, and it's 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 basically about Halloween. I have no idea, really, and I'm sure there's a reason why it's called The Night Before Christmas when it has to do with Halloween. I have no idea. But I know that everyone's seen it. It's known as a Halloween mu- uh, movie. And, I, you know, I went with what I thought the people would say. And that's why I included it. Okay. Well, two things wrong with your theory right there. Everyone has seen it. I've never seen it. And it's known as a Halloween movie. I've never thought of it as a Halloween movie. I assumed it was a Christmas movie because it's called The Night Before Christmas, which would be Christmas Eve. Um, I, I don't know. It makes no sense to me either. Uh, my number five is Ernest Scared Stupid. No, it's not. I, I, that is considered to be a Halloween movie, though, so I wanted to put that out there. I've uh, actually seen that movie several times. Uh, my number five is The Exorcist. Okay. Classic movie. I mean, it. Uh, you really can't say much else about it. It's scary as shit, right? And it's, uh, you know, anytime you can get a teenager, you know, I don't know, rotating her head and throwing up, that's pretty incredible. Okay. You described that in a way that it made me wonder if you have actually seen it, but I think you saved it at the end. Uh, what's your number four? Of course I've seen it. Uh, my number four, uh, I'm back on, on the on the kick as I was last top five, but uh, Beetlejuice. Okay. I forgot that that was kind of Halloween related. I thought of it more as a ghost movie. I think that's a solid, that could be a solid number four depending on how the rest of your list goes. Uh, my number four is the Blair Witch Project. Man, see that was a I. I wanted to put that on the list because I think I've said it before on the show that that's like the one movie that scared the shit out of me growing up. But uh, I, I didn't put it on my list. Okay, what's your number three? It's a tie between Friday the Thirteenth and Evil Dead. I don't even know what Evil Dead is. I've never even heard of it. So it. Uh, Stars Bruce Campbell, Royal Oak, Michigan native. Don't know who that is. Fair enough. Uh, and basically, it's about a, a bunch of teenagers that find, and I'm going to fuck up the name of it so you can make fun of me. But the uh, the 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 Necronomicon or, or the the Book of the Dead, basically. Okay, Necronomicon bring, is what it's called. Yes, thank you. I knew you were good for something. And uh, they raise the dead, and, and Bruce Campbell comes in and saves the day, and. It's 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 a fun movie. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. And then Friday the 13th, I mean, Jason Voorhees, he's a staple of scary movies. Halloween, you know, I mean, it's I feel like you got to put that on the list somewhere. 
Okay, well, I did it. Um, my number three is Hocus Pocus. All right. Uh, surprisingly enough, that's my number two. <laughs> I thought there was no way that you were going to have Hocus Pocus on there. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's a good kids movie. It's fun. I, I, it's on all the fucking time now. Um, it's, it's just, a, I don't know, it's just a good Halloween movie. Yeah, it's a good movie. Uh, my number two is The Addams Family. That also, you literally named the, your top five as two of my honorable mentions. That made my my honorable mention. Was the other one Ernest Scared Stupid? <laughs> no, it's the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> Whatever happened to <laughs> Ernest? Didn't he get a... It's either... Is he dead? I think he's dead. Yeah, he died. I get him and Pee Wee Herman confused. I remember one went to jail, one died. I don't remember which one. <laughs> Pee Wee Herman got caught jerking off in a movie theater. That's... Yeah. <laughs> His name was Pee Wee Herman. Was anybody really that surprised? Uh, what's your number one? This should be the easiest number one ever. Everyone should have it. It's Halloween. Okay. That's with... Michael um, Myers. I mean, you know, you, t- you take away the fact that it's a scary movie. I mean, and it's, it's everything that the Halloween culture, at least in America, is based around. Like, you know... Stabbing people by lake houses? <laughs> no. Uh, you know, cold weather, uh, you know, scary movies. You know, uh, just, I mean, Michael Myers is probably the most iconic, one of the most iconic characters in any, any genre of a movie ever. Okay, that's a little much, but all right. I mean, I'm, I'm, clearly you're a fan. <laughs> I mean, I mean, if. I feel like he's universally known, the, the, at least the character is. I mean, to me, I mean, he's not like a C-3PO, but like he's just a notch below C-3PO Whoa. and like people Whoa. knowing him. No, I would put him at the same level of Ernest, to be honest with you. People know who he is, but it's not that crazy. I, no, I would, I would say the same amount of people know who Ernest is as know who Michael Myers is. No, I, see, I, I can't go with you on that one. I mean, I... I, I just can't. And I even know, I know too much about Ernest because I was raised in a family that watched shitty mov- movies and he was on a lot. Yeah, you did. Uh, my number one, I think if you accept it as a Halloween movie, which it is, is actually a universal movie that basically touched on all the themes that you were so glowingly talking about Michael Myers in, and that's The Karate Kid. Oh my. I mean, explain it. I will reserve my judgment till after you explain it. One of the most iconic scenes in that movie is when Danielson goes to the Halloween dance and he first encounters the people, not first, but he has a confrontation with the members of Cobra Kai. They're dressed as skeletons. They get tripped. There's Mr. Miyagi. He's carving pumpkins. Karate Kid is a Halloween movie. And Karate Kid is a better movie than Halloween, therefore making it the best Halloween movie. Oh, man. Uh, I mean, you make a valid point. I can't go against what you're saying. I mean, there is a Halloween, I don't know, uh, segment to it, I guess. I, I, it's, I, I don't think of it as a Halloween movie, but I can't dispute the fact that their incident at a Halloween party... Is what kicks off, you know, the movie, or, or I should say, what drives the movie. 
Um, I still think the fact that you didn't have Halloween at all on the list makes me kind of want to karate kick kick you into next week. What's on uh, What's on your honorable mention? Well, I mean, you, I mean, you kind of na- you kind of named two of them as, as I said. Uh, I mean, I have Freddy Krueger on, on the list. Uh, I had Blair Witch on the list. I have Chucky on the list. I have Halloween Town. Never heard Wait, of that movie. It's a, it was a Disney movie. Uh, I actually there was a few of them. I also have Charlie um, uh, Charlie Brown and the Great Pumpkin. Ooh, that should be on there actually. That no. should be on a top five list. That's a pretty classic movie. But uh, yeah, what about about your uh, honorable mention, Donnie Darko? Okay, I mean that's. Wow, you're going way dark on that one, but that, uh, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, And Grumpier Old Men is apparently considered a Halloween movie as well. Really? I have no idea why, but it's a good movie. It's on Wikipedia's list of movies considered to be Halloween movies. (laughs) Okay. Interesting. That's that's about it. That's really the only ones that I kind of picked. I mean, Ernest Scared scared Stupid is really hard to beat. I mean, the Scream movies are also, like, good, but... I I liked the original Scary Movie, that parody of the movies. I thought that was... The original (laughs) one, I thought that was one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. All the other ones were terrible, but the original Scary Movie was really good. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of the Profoundly Pointless Podcast. We really appreciate you guys listening. If you get a chance, like download, subscribe, share. It really helps us out. We would love to hear what your guys' top five scary Halloween movies are. I I am kind of regretting not putting Ernest Scared Stupid in the top five. I think it's something that deserved it.